Let's pray. Father, thank you for you. We thank you for your presence. We thank you for your goodness. And I just thank you for your greater sense of your love that, you're, that you've displayed in this place this morning. I thank you for your grace, your encouragement, your favor. We thank you for favor, O oh God. We love you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Brothers, I want to say something to you today. I want to say that you matter. I want to say that you matter. Men, you matter. I'm not talking just to fathers and natural fathers or biological, you know, if you have physical children, but I'm talking to the men today. And ladies, I'm going to, with your permission, thanks for giving it to me. I want to speak to my brothers today, and, and this will be just like a big NFL meeting that you ladies get to sit in on, but you don't get to participate. But I feel like the Lord just put on my heart, usually I, I'm not too big into traditional messages, you know, being Father's Day, so you got to preach a Father's Day message, you know, et cetera, et cetera. But the Lord put this on my heart to share, to talk to you brothers and I want to start off with, a, um, with an article written by a, a pastor named Mark Gunger. Some of you may be familiar with him, his ministry. He has a marriage conference that he calls Laugh Your Way to a Better Marriage. Um, <clears throat> he's an author, a pastor, a conference speaker, a very, very neat man of God. And if you've never been to, if you've ever, anybody ever heard of Laugh Your Way to a Better Marriage? Uh, very, very entertaining, very humorous, very convicting at the same time. But I want to read an article that he, he wrote um, not too long ago. And actually, I'm just going to read the whole thing, so it'll probably take a few minutes, so just bear with me. We live in a culture today that minimizes the role of men, discounts the importance of fathers, and generally tends to dismiss the male gender as unnecessary. Stemming from the women's live movement that began in the late 60s and early 70s, the continuing pervasive line of thinking says that women don't really need a man. They can do almost everything that a father does in a family and that men are pretty much obsolete. Sadly, some go as far as employing the science of artificial insemination where a woman doesn't even need the man for procreation. She only needs his sperm. So, as, so are men really only useful as sperm donors? Or is there something that the feminist agenda is missing? Studies have shown that indeed their thinking is very flawed and they are missing a great deal. The bottom line of research says that it is the father who overwhelmingly determines the moral and spiritual development of the children. Three separate studies that I have read come to mind. One done by the Swiss government, a second reported by the Baptist Press, and finally a third one reported by MSNBC, hardly a Christian bias outlet. A variety of sources, the government, church, and the liberal left, yet these investigations show the same results. All three sources support the important influence fathers have on their kids, shocking as that is to those in the We Don't Need Men Club. 
First, the Swiss study published in 2000 showed that it is the religious practice of the father of the family that above all determines the future church attendance of the children. Check out this amazing, amazing statistic. Mother and father attend church regularly. This is the first thing. So when the mother and father attend church regularly, there's a 30, 33% of their children will end up attending church regularly, and 25% of their children will end up not attending at all. When mother attends church regularly, father does not attend church at all. 2% of their children will end up attending church regularly. 60% of their children will end up not attending at all. When a father attends church regularly and a mother does not attend church at all, 44% of their children will end up attending church regularly. 34% of their children will end up not attending at all. While many people believe that women are the primary parents and that men are pretty much non-essential, these numbers prove differently. There is no comparison. 2% compared to 44%. Men do matter, and that father's influence and participation in church attendance and the spiritual development of his children is a great indicator of how successful families are at passing their faith on to the next generation. Surprisingly, even when both parents attend church regularly, the number drops 10%. My theory is because so many women end up criticizing their husbands in this area and undermine his value and influence over the children. Numbers like this can be very depressing to single moms out there, and they can end up feeling horrible. I don't intend to condemn anyone, and I feel badly for all you ladies who are struggling to do your very best with your children. Of course you need help from other people, especially male role models, and the grace and mercy of God cannot be underestimated. But we shouldn't fool ourselves. Single parenting is not the best case scenario. And because of this flaw of thinking that says men are pretty much irrelevant, too many women are quick to cast aside the marriages and dismiss the important role of their husbands in the lives of their kids. Many women say that they can do as good or better of a job without the man. Yet these numbers say that that in fact, yet these numbers don't say that. In fact, they scream the very opposite. Now let's look at the numbers from the survey released by the Baptist Press. It says that if the mother is the first to become a Christian in a household, if the mother is the first to become a Christian in a household, there is a 17% probability that everyone in the household will follow. If the father is the first to become a Christian in a household, there is a 93% probability that everyone in the household will follow. Sadly, even these Even though these studies show the value men have in transmitting their faith to their families, most churches are missing the boat on this one. They are not connecting with men. They aren't unleashing the spiritual power latent in the male population. And until churches and pastors learn to tap into the spiritual potential in men, the church will only be a fraction of what we are supposed to be. I realize that saying this is very politically incorrect. But if you look at the makeup of most Christian churches in America, 60% or more are women, and 40% or less are men. Unfortunately, most of that 40% of guys are those whose wives drag them into the building every Sunday. The church has become so over-feminized that it is not real or relevant to many men. In no other major religion do we see this but for Western Christianity. You don't see it in Islam, Buddhism, or Judaism. It's exclusively our problem that men pull back or refuse to get involved in any significant capacity in our churches. The Christian church must do a better job of drawing in the men and reaching the fathers in our communities and congregations. By doing so, families will reap the benefits of a godly male influence, which in turn will bring great power to the church body 
at large. And finally, we will look at the MSNBC study on how fathers influence the moral decisions of their children. According to the study, teenagers whose fathers are more involved in their lives are less likely to engage in risky sexual activities such as unprotected intercourse. While an uninvolved mother can also help stave off a teen's sexual activities, dad have twice the influence. Men are not just some small incidental with no significance as they are often regarded. Fathers have a large and very important role in the lives and futures of their children. In fact, double the influence on the moral development. So when women are choosing to become pregnant or adopt children to raise by themselves, when mothers decide that the fathers of their children are, are dispensable, divorce the guys and allow them minimal contact with their kids, they are overlooked. They are overlooking one of the essential and key elements in raising strong, confident, and godly sons and daughters. And when men are choosing to leave their kids behind, be it in out-of-wedlock births, through divorce or abandonment, or even being a present but clearly absent father in the home, they are missing out on the greatest opportunity, opportunity that they have, the chance to be an influence to future generations. We have not yet begun to see the ramifications of a society that thinks so little about the value of men and their role as dads. As our culture continues to devalue men more and more, and as fewer men choose to take an active role in the lives of their children, societal ills will keep growing. A recent study by the Pew Research Center tells of another startling statistic. 41% of babies born in 2008 were born to unmarried mothers versus 5% in 1960. If you want a clear picture of what kids without fathers can become, look no further than our prison system. The vast majority of men and women incarcerated grew up without a strong father to influence their moral and spiritual development. Children who grew up without dads have more school and behavioral issues higher suicide rates, increased drug and substance abuse, and juvenile delinquency. And the list goes on and on. Whether through divorce, abandonment, or being disconnected, disengaged, and never present with the family, absent fathers create a huge void, and our society is suffering for it. As these statistics show, it is time to put it into the guys, you can take them or leave them, since they aren't really that important or necessary, mindset we have in America. Men do matter. Fathers are very significant, and all the dads and moms, politicians and government, teachers and administrators in school, and especially all the pastors in our churches need to take that seriously. <clears throat> now, as I talk about the significance and the importance of men, no way am I devaluing the significance and importance of women. So I don't want you to leave here with the idea that women are not important. That's not the issue. Today, I'm just focusing on the men. And we all know, we've all seen the shows and see how, you know, common modern-day sitcoms, how, this, how the man is made to look, you know, a bumbling idiot, a doofus, can't do things right. He needs the mom, the wife to keep everything together. And it's okay to, to value and display the strengths of women, but not at the expense of the value of man. And that's what's happening in our society. It's like this, you know, back in the women's, the women's lib movement, obviously there was a reaction there that was created out of a, of a big void, a need, a, a, an abuse, a lack of women's rights and, and all those things. 
but I believe they swung too far to the other side. And it's like our society is still reacting to that because of women being treated so poorly. And they had a movement to try to undo that and to fix that. But even to this day, we're still moving in the opposite direction where we're belittling and putting man down. And I believe that that is an agenda of the enemy. Statistics prove out that when men do not take their rightful place in society, in their homes, in their churches, when men do not take their rightful place, society suffers. And that's a fact. Society suffers. And of course, we could all think about the, the bad things men do, the, the mistakes fathers make, and all that kind of thing. <clears throat> And I'm not dwelling on talking about that right now because we know the mistakes we've made as men. We know the mistakes that our fathers have made. Whether they've abandoned us or abused us, mistreated us, all that stuff. I'm not talking about that right now. I'm talking about the prevailing attitude that's in our society that men are insignificant. And where is that going to change? Can we... Look to the politicians to, to put legislation in place to make everybody have a better attitude towards the men? Probably not going to happen, is it? It starts in the body of Christ. It starts in the church. We need to realize the attitudes that we have. And we need to repent of them. Men, you have been given a tremendous opportunity and grace. The opportunity is there and the grace is also there by God to make a huge impact, a huge, powerful, godly impact on our society. Huge. In our families, in our churches. But we have to choose to embrace that grace Because if we resist the grace, then it's not going to happen. And that's what's been happening too often as we as men are not embracing the grace that will enable us to run effectively the race that he has set before us. So we have to hold on, grab a hold of that grace and say, God, help me. Those of you who are fathers, you know how difficult it is being a father. It is difficult. It is not easy. You know, when your kid's pop out of the mom, there's no instructions attached to them. Well, I haven't found any. If you guys found some, let me know. And so you have this little bundle of joy, or whatever he might be at that time, crying, screaming, looking at you. Yep, I'm your kid, and you're going to take care of me. Reality sets in, and it's like, oh my goodness, I'm responsible for this little one. They don't come with instructions, but the Lord has given us instructions in his word. But see, we have to remember, too, that along with his instruction, you know, like in Ephesians chapter 6, I believe it's verse 4.
Ephesians chapter 6, verse 4. Fathers, do not irritate and provoke. I'm reading from the Amplified. Fathers, do not irritate and provoke your children to anger. Do not exasperate them to resentment, but rear them tenderly in the training and discipline and the counsel and admonition of the Lord. So we're given instruction as men not to exasperate our children, but to train them tenderly in the instruction of the Lord. So the Lord says, here's men, here's what you're supposed to do. But the cool thing is, is he says, but I also give you the grace to do it. In other words, grace in my definition is the ability and the desire given to you by God to do his will. It's the ability and the desire given to you by God. It's given through the Holy Spirit that dwells within you. So when we understand the instruction and we take a hold of that grace, then we can run effectively. And there's no excuse. If things aren't working out the way we think they should or the way we know they should, then it's probably, for the most part, because we're not embracing the grace to do things the way the Lord wants us to. But what I want to mainly <clears throat> focus on today is my heart is that you go away today, men, realizing, being reminded of your significance. But I want to dwell on a major component that I believe is going to help us men to be able to move and walk effectively in the calling that God has given us. Just because we're men doesn't mean we're going to be successful. Just because I'm a father or a dad is not going to make me a successful father. Just because I'm married doesn't make me, doesn't mean I'm going to automatically walk and love my wife the way she needs and the way Jesus tells me to. So just being a man doesn't make that happen. But the fact that I am a man means that if I submit to God, I'm going to be equipped to do what he wants me to do. Amen? And this isn't, gonna be, this isn't just a pep talk. Come on, guys, you're important. We can do it. Let's go out there and get it done. Now, hopefully you'll be encouraged. But I want to talk about something practical that many of us men miss. And I believe is one of the great reasons why we're not being as effective and as fruitful as God desires us to be. You can be a great husband, <coughs> a lousy father, and not having any impact on the community around you. That's not good enough. You can be a horrible husband, a wonderful, awesome father, and be winning the world for Jesus. That's not good enough. You can be a horrible father, lousy husband, and getting souls saved left and right every day for the kingdom of heaven. That's not good enough. I believe God has called us to be the best husbands on the planet, the most respected fathers on the planet, and the most effective kingdom builders on the planet. Our wives, our children, the world. All of it. Not two out of three. That's only 66%. Excuse me, 67% if you round off. But God gives us the grace to be 100%. Now, that doesn't mean perfect, but that means thriving in all those areas. 
And so that some of you guys don't check out on me because you say, well, I'm not a dad. I don't have any kids yet, or I don't have any kids. You're not exempt from this because Jesus has called every single one of us to go and make disciples. So whether you have biological children or not, you're still called to be fruitful and even be spiritual fathers to young men out there. So I'm talking to all of us men. Amen? You know, some of my favorite movies are hero movies. Like the Marvels, um, what's the latest one? That, um, the, uh, the Avengers. I like the Avengers. Avengers are awesome. I like the Batmans, the Spider-Mans, the Supermans, and all those, because it, it talks about a man or men or superheroes that are fighting for good and fighting for justice. And so they come and they, they protect and, and they help the defenseless or they help the weak. And they stand for right and truth and justice. Now, for the most part, there's some crazy characters out there. And I believe God has put that. You know, men, you know when we, we talk about there's a difference between chick flicks and men movies, right? I'm not going to even dwell on the chick flicks because my wife might make me watch one today. But, you know, there's the chick flicks where... There's romance and happiness, and the guy sits there and listens to his wife talk and all that kind of stuff. There's those kind of movies, and then there's the, the men like to see the blow them up, killing the bad guys, protecting the woman, and all that good stuff. And I believe the reason why us men respond to those movies generally, not every man likes that kind of movie, but just generally speaking, why we respond to that is because it, it speaks to something that God put in us, and it's that warrior thing. God has called us men to be warriors. He didn't call us to be wimps. Regardless of our personality, regardless of our makeup, whatever, he has called us to be warriors. And that's to defend. That is to protect. That is to conquer. And we as men are called to do that. I believe that's why one of man's favorite characters in the Bible, when I talk to a lot of men, I always hear David come up. David's one of our favorite characters. Why? Because we can relate to him. He was a man that messed up, didn't he? He messed up a lot. So he was not a perfect man. He was someone we could relate to because he was passionate for God, passionate for the king. Talking about the the king of kings, not King Saul. (laughs) Although he was loyal to him, but he was passionate for the king of kings. He was passionate in worship, his commitment to him. But he was a warrior. And when he saw anything coming against that which he was to protect, for example, he was put in charge of the sheep. You know those few sheep that his brother said? Go watch your few sheep. He was called to protect his daddy's sheep. That was his call. That was his assignment. And when a lion and a bear tried to come after those few little sheep, see, most wimps would say, have a nice lunch, I'm out of here. Plenty of land chops for the taking. But what did David do? He put his own life in harm's way to take down this bear and to take down a lion. And I believe the scripture says that one of them, I can't remember if it's both of them, one he did with his bare hands. Is that correct? He grabbed the beard. How many of you men have grabbed the beard of a lion that's ready to kill you and you take him down? I mean, David was bad, wasn't he? 
I love that guy. But he said, not on my watch. You can't have this. Not on my watch. And then obviously the bear wasn't paying attention. He didn't see what happened to the lion. Or he didn't smell the carcass that was rotten in the field over there. And the bear tried the same thing. He got taken out too. And then apparently Goliath wasn't paying attention either. But we see what David did, how he was, the kind of man he was. And us men, we can relate to that. And I believe it's because God has put that warrior mentality, that warrior's heart in all of us men. But we can't just go around relying on our testosterone to get the job done. We have to not only embrace the grace of God, but also his principles and his instruction that's going to give us the strategy to be effective. Amen? <clears throat> and I'm going to talk about something that you guys, it's going to shock you. Very new concept. But I believe the key component that's going to help us men to be the warriors that we're called to be, to be as effective and fruitful that Jesus called us to be. He called us to bear much fruit. He's not content with us just being fruitful. But he said, you know what? I've made it possible. I've done everything I can to impact the universe so you, son, can bear much fruit. He's made it possible. He's made everything available that we need to bear much fruit. But there's one component I think we need to grab a hold of and and embrace more. And that word is, somebody tell me what I'm about to say. Relate? What? No. Just kidding. Yes. (laughs) Relationship. Relationship. Some of you are thinking, oh, no, not again. Here we go. You're right. Here we go. God is making this such a part of me that the only way you're going to be able to hear, to stop hearing about relationship is to not be around me. Apologize. No, I don't apologize for that. I used to apologize for that, but I don't anymore. Because my heart and my cry to my king is, God, I want to be effective. I want to be more effective. I want to be effective. I want to make disciples for your kingdom. I want to be effective. I want to honor you. And that's my heart's cry. And I know that's your heart's cry too. We want to be effective. And he's showing me, okay, son, here's how. And now when I look in the word of God, all I see is relationships everywhere. Speaking of which, David, man after God's own heart, did he have a close relationship? No, he didn't. He, didn't. he was such a man, he didn't need anybody. He didn't need Jonathan, did he? He didn't need him. David had a close, intimate relationship, didn't he? With another warrior who could kick some major butt. So when you look in the, in the, in the word of God, and even Jesus sent out his disciples, when he was training them, how did he send them out? He said, okay, I got 12 cities, I got 12 guys, good, each guy hit a city. Is that how he did it? He sent them out in twos. Sent them out in partners, twos. So when they went out together to accomplish the task that the king has given them, whatever city they went, and he knew they were going to face hardships, they, it wasn't going to just be a piece of cake for them. They were going to face challenges, demonize people. 
He sent them out in two so they could stand up together, so they could support one another. In Ecclesiastes 4, 9 through 12, it says, Two are better than one because they have a good return for their work. If one falls down, his friend can help him up. But pity the man who falls and has no one to help him. Pity the man who falls and has no one to help him. Now, how many of you warriors out there realize that we are called into a war? And sometimes we get hit, we get blindsided, we get hit in the back of the head, or we get knocked down. We're all going to get knocked down. We're all going to get knocked down. But it says, pity the man who falls and has no one to help him. Also, if two lie down together, they will keep warm. But how can one keep warm? Though one may be overpowered, two can defend themselves. A cord of three strands is not quickly broken. The importance of relationships, right there. And there's all kinds of things in the New Testament and Old Testament talk about the importance of relationships. And see, the thing is, is we, because of, I don't know what all the reasons are, but society has something to do with it. The way we were raised has something to do with the way church typically is, has something to do with it. But we men don't believe or we're not really sold on the fact that we need close brother relationships. We think we can do it alone. And many of us do it alone, or we attempt to do it alone. And I believe if you continue to walk alone and try to fight the good fight the way God has called you to, you will not be as successful and as fruitful as God has called you to be. I sincerely believe that. What kind of relationship am I talking about? I'm talking about the biblical friendship that Jesus modeled. Biblical friendship. That's a term I'm using right now, biblical friendship. You remember Jesus said, I no, call, no longer call you my servants, but I call you what? What did he call them? He called them friends. In other words, he was moving with them into a different type of relationship. It wasn't just a master-servant type relationship, but it was a friendship. But he said, you are my friends if you do what I say. So Jesus had a, a special dynamic type relationship with them because they were friends but they were he was also their master but when we look at how he walked with them we see how how he invited them into a closeness i mean think about it the king of the universe was in on the planet on earth in the flesh could he have a relationship with everybody at the same time was he physically able to have a relationship with five thousand people that came to eat fish and bread was he able to I'm I'm asking, is he? Was he? No, he was not. He was limited. He preached to the masses. He trained the disciples. Whether it was the 72 he sent out or whether it was the 12, but he was intimate with three. There were three men that Jesus pulled close to himself. There was a time when when Jairus' daughter was dying, and Jesus said, hey, you three, come with me. They knew who they were. They went with Jesus. He raised the girl from the dead. There was a time when he said, hey, you three, come with me on the Mount of Transfiguration. And Jesus had that time of glory when he changed. Who got to see that? All 12? No. The three got to see that. And then at the very end, when Jesus is about to be crucified, the disciples were with him, at least 11 were, 
But he pulled three to come closer with him deeper into the garden. And remember, it was his most, it was his most difficult struggle that Jesus had when he was on this planet. He, and the Bible says he went back and forth three times saying, God, if it's possible for this cup to be removed, please remove it, but not my will. And we know it was a struggle because it records that he did this three times. And after the first time, he went to his, his buddies and they were asleep. And he's like, guys, wake up. Can't you stay with? Come on, stay with me here. He went back again, cried out to the father again, came back and they were asleep again. But the interesting thing is that Jesus made himself, I believe, vulnerable to three men. There was one brother, John, that even laid, he was so close to Jesus, he laid his head on Jesus' chest. And he referred to himself as the disciple whom Jesus loved. You know, John was the one that wrote that about himself. You know, the disciple who Jesus loved, yeah, that was me. placed himself in favor. But the point I want to make is that this relationship thing, this biblical friendship that I'm talking about is not just some something I'm pulling out so that it sounds nice and warm fuzzy, so let's try this thing. That's not what I'm talking about. We are called to be effective in making disciples. And for the most part, the church in America is not being effective in accomplishing that. The church in America is diminishing. It's diminishing. Now, not the church in the world. The church in America is diminishing. I can't remember how many thousands of churches close their doors monthly in America. How many pastors quit weekly? I mean, the numbers are staggering. How many pastors quit? How many churches shut their doors? And the percentage of our teens who are, who are born again... I mean, the statistics are scary. So something's not right. And one difference that you can look at, if you look at other cultures, the Asian culture, the African culture, you know, the Mexican culture, other cultures, they're about relationship. They're about hospitality. They're about relationship, coming together. I mean, the families, you know, mom, dad, grandma, grandpa, great, 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 great. They all live together or close by. There's this this thing built into their culture that relationship is extremely important. And so, therefore, they carry that mentality into the church. And the churches are just growing like crazy. Africa, China, Mexico, I mean, revival's happening. But in America... Grandma lives on that coast. Grandpa lives on the other coast. Aunt Bessie lives in Canada. Uncle John lives in Texas. I don't know where my mom is. People are just scattered. And because of the, the, the way the family has fallen apart, I mean, it's just crazy. And you guys know what I'm talking about. I'm not saying anything new. But because that's the way our culture is right now, that's the way our society operates, and we were all brought up into that, we bring that right into the church. So when we talk about relationships, at best, we hang out during potlucks or men's breakfasts or women's teas or whatever. 
And then we think, oh, yeah, we have relationship. I see Caleb on Sunday morning, say, hey, how's it going? Oh, yeah, we talk about something. And then six days, seven days pass, I see him on Sunday again. Hey, Caleb, how's it going? Yeah, me and Caleb are real good friends. How you doing? Oh, good. How's work? Good. I'll see you next Sunday. And that's typically what our relationships look like. I don't know what's going on in his life. I don't know what's going on in his marriage. I don't know, what's, I don't know how he's doing, really. But when we see each other, typically it's, how you doing? Great. How are you doing? Awesome. And as, now I'm speaking generically, generally speaking. And we call that relationship. And so in reality, two brothers see each other on Sunday, but during the week we're struggling like crazy. Man, I don't know how to love my wife. I don't know how to do this job. This stinks. I, I mean, and we're just struggling. We're alone. Who am I going to call to help me? Who am I going to call to pray for me? But on the other hand, if I decide that I'm going to come into a relationship with this brother and we start on Sunday, hey, you want to get together for some, I was going to say coffee, but I don't do coffee. Hey, you want to get together for a Coke or something? And we get together and we sit down and talk. We sit down in fellowship and we begin to open our hearts with one another. We begin to share. We begin to do this on a regular basis. And then there's an environment of trust. I realize I can trust this guy. So, hey, this is what's really going on with me. I say, here's, here's what it is. Here's what I'm struggling with. I need help. I need prayer. And he does the same thing. And then when I'm going through a struggle, I'm, I'm, I mean, I feel like the grace is diminishing and I'm about to fall apart. I either call Caleb or send him a text and say, hey, brother, I'm struggling. I need you to pray for me right now. He says, where are you at? I'm at the office, on my way. See, this is the kind of thing that is starting to happen that I'm hearing about and I'm seeing and experiencing with, with men in our church. And what I get excited about, the reason why I get so passionate about relationships is because I see people who are engaging in them and it's changing their lives. It's saving their lives. It's revolutionizing their marriage. Because a brother has another brother to come alongside him and say, man, that's not right. That's not right to treat your wife that way. Oh, really? I thought it was okay. No, it sucks. No, that's not acceptable. And the only reason why that one brother can talk to that brother like that is because the, brother, the other brother says, I want you to keep me accountable. I need you. I trust you. I want you to keep me accountable. The brother says, okay. And then if that brother sees something going awry, he says, hey, bro, that's not cool. The way you're treating your wife is not cool. The brother says, well, what do I need to do? True teaching moment right there. See, when we relegate discipleship to just Bible study, we get together in a group and have a Bible study, and that's typically what the church in America does, and we call that discipleship, then that's part of discipleship. But I don't believe that that's the most important part of discipleship. Now, believe me, I'm not diminishing the Word of God. I'm diminishing how we implement the Word of God. Because we come together and we exchange information. And I can quote my scriptures and you quote your scriptures and we're all flexing our scriptural muscles and saying, ooh, I know a lot, you know a lot. Yeah, you know Ephesians chapter 5 verse something says to love your wife as Christ loves the church. And oh man, you're smart, you're awesome. And I can quote these scriptures on marriage and not doing one thing about it. 
But when I'm in a close relationship with a brother, I can quote the scriptures, but the brother's not going to let me get away with just quoting the word if I'm not living up to the task. Because you know what? I heard you talk about that scripture about loving your wife, but I don't see you doing it. What's up with that? So there are four key elements in the type of relationship that I'm talking about. Actually, there's five, but I only put four. I may mention the other one if I remember it. But first of all, we have to have an environment where trust is developed between brothers. There has to be an environment where trust is developed. Because we're going to talk about transparency, vulnerability, accountability, intentionality. But see, I'm not going to stand up here and be transparent in front of everybody. Now, on a certain level, I will. The Lord tells me to. But I'm not going to come up here every week and tell you how I'm struggling. That's not healthy. And that's called stupidity. Because you, it is not safe to be transparent with everybody because you open yourself up. You remove that armor, you're going to get a bunch of arrows in your chest. Like, whoa, where did those come from? So it's not safe to be transparent. It's not wise to be transparent with everybody where we say, okay, everybody in here, we're going to be transparent with one another. That is not what I'm talking about. That is foolishness and all other kinds of words. But we want an environment here in this place, an environment of honor, where we begin to honor one another. We begin to trust and love one another, where gossip is minimized. Because if there's an environment of gossip here, and then I'm going to think about being transparent with a brother, it's like, wait a minute, how do I know he's not one of them gossip people? And I share my heart, and then that thing is all over the newsletter and the church and everything. I don't think so. Not going to happen to me, and so therefore I stay closed up. Because I don't feel safe. So there has to be a general overall, we honor and love each other. Well, we're not going to gossip about one another. We're going to believe the best for one another. When there's a problem with a brother or sister in the church, I'm going to do my best to get it worked out. And if I have a problem, I'm frustrated, angry, or or don't understand something, I'm going to do what I can to communicate with the right people so that I can understand what's going on. See, if you're frustrated about what's going on in this church, or upset, or whatever, and you don't talk to the right people, then what good is that? What if there's something going on that I'm not aware of, or the leaders aren't aware of, and the and only way we're aware of it is if you bring it to our attention, say, you know, I'm really kind of frustrated about this. What are you talking about? Well, this and this and this. Really? That's going on? Yes. I wasn't aware of that. Todd, were you aware of that? No. Greg? Pastor Dale, were you aware? Steve, did you know that was going on? No. We've got to deal with this. Thank you for bringing it to our attention. Or maybe you're dealing with something you're frustrated with, having a hard time with. And you sit down and talk with a leader, someone who hopefully would know what's going on. And maybe you can understand and get a perspective from that that person. Here's why we're doing what we're doing. Oh, really? I thought it was because of this. No, that's not why we're doing it. We're doing it because of this. Oh, that makes sense. That's different than what I thought. So in other words, there may be a situation that needs to change. There may be a situation that you need better understanding, a different perspective to understand. Or there may be a situation where we just have to learn to agree to disagree. It's like, you know, I really don't agree with that. It's like, okay, I understand. This is where I stand. This is where you stand. But can we still walk together? 
We're able to walk together. Because if you're like, well, no, because this is a core value of mine, and you don't agree with it, and so even though I can walk in love with you, I can't stay in this place. I understand that. If that's the case, so be it. But if we have grumbling, complaining, griping, if we have gossiping and all that kind of stuff, then the environment that God's wanting to create here is not going to happen because it won't be safe. So we're endeavoring to allow the Holy Spirit to create an environment of of trust. It has to come through communication. You have to be communicating with people. If you're frustrated about something, you have to communicate with the right people. That's my appeal to you. So then after that trust is developed, then four key elements need to happen. Where are the microphones at? I need some help from some brothers. The first element is transparency. Transparency. And I want to ask, I want to hear from you brothers, what do you think, when we're talking about transparency, what does that mean? What does it mean when we talk about, okay, in a relationship between me and this brother, there needs to be transparency. And I want to hear from you brothers, tell me. We got mics, so raise your hand and then a brother can... Have you speak in the mic so we can be recorded? Oh, Chris over there. (coughs) Hello. Um, We were actually talking about this last night, some of the guys in the church. Uh, When we're transparent, like we just look at the definition of transparency, it means able to see through something. Um, And so if I'm able to see through my brother's heart, it means that he's allowed me to see through it. It means that he's taken off something that was over it, um, you know, we can't see our heart because of the covering that's the skin that's covering us. And so being transparent means I'm allowing my brother to see even the dirty stuff inside me, even the things that uh, I feel he may, uh, you know, if he sees it, is he still going to accept me? Is he still going to love me? Is he still going to trust me? Um, and through, like Pastor was talking about, through that that covenant that we have, it means that, hey, I know that I can open this to you because I trust you. Because I know that when you see this, you know that this is, this is not who I am. This is just a part of me that, it, that God is need, needing to, to cleanse and to <coughs> purify. And so, like, like CJ said, I just completely agree. It means that uh, if me and Omid and Caleb and, and Stephen and, and Daniel, if, if we're going to be in that covenant together, it means that there's got to be a level of trust to where I know that Daniel's not going to go tell somebody else, man, listen to this guy. Listen to what he did. I know I did it. I know it's pretty bad. But I also know that this dude loves me and that he's going to be in a foxhole with me. Uh, I know he's going to have my back when I fall. I know that I'm not going to get, you know, shanked from the back by somebody else. And he's not going to be the one shanking me. He's going to be the <laughs> one lifting me up. You know what I'm saying? So. That's right. Very well put. I appreciate that, Chris. That was very well put. You guys get that? Removing the covering. That's a good way to put it. Transparent, being able to see through. And tip, generally speaking, we're all covered up. And there's a time for the covering up. But men, if you walk around all the time covered up and you don't have anybody else. Now, let me say, let me back up a little bit. I'm assuming that you understand that you need to be transparent with your wife. Okay? That's a dumb assumption probably. But I'm assuming that you understand, yes, I need to be transparent with my wife. And if you're having issues with that, then we need to talk. 
But I'm assuming that that's in place because you can't skip your spouse and then move on to friendship with another brother and, and me and my brother are going to be transparent, that kind of thing, and I'm not with my, with my wife. That's out of order. All right? So I just want to make that clear. That just popped in my head. So opening yourself up. And if you're, and see, I believe David and Jonathan were very transparent with one another. I believe they were. I believe when Paul and Silas are going around preaching the gospel and everything, and they ended up in jail, and they got their butts kicked, their backs whipped, and all that kind of stuff, I believe on that journey that they were walking together, I believe they were sharing life with one. They were talking and fellowshipping, maybe debating and, and sharing. Man, brother, would you pray for me? I'm, I'm struggling with this and that. I believe they were transparent. I believe Paul was a transparent type person. I mean, we can see it in his, in his writing. But I believe these men that we hold up as mighty men of God, I believe that they had these kind of relationships. So brothers, number one, you need to be in a relationship or two or three where you can be transparent. And that's one thing that's happening in, in the NFL. And I really appreciate that being an environment where brothers are beginning to open up. And they're meeting other men in that group that they begin to form deeper relationships outside the group. Because if we just keep it, again, in the church, we're not accomplishing anything. Even having a great intimate Bible study back there and great discussion back there in the youth room on Sunday night at 6 o'clock, that is not enough. But that's a great start. Okay, so transparency. Okay, the second one, vulnerability. So we know there's got to be some transparency in this type of relationship we're talking about, biblical friendship. Vulnerability. Can a brother give me a definition of or what we're talking about? What do you think we're talking about? We're talking about vulnerability. Nobody? Oh, all right. We got uh, Caleb up here. <coughs> about to say, if nobody else says anything, I'm going to call on Chris again. Um, I feel like for me, that's getting into relationships and being able to take the wounds of a friend. You know, Proverbs talks about faithful are the wounds of a friend. And, um, and allowing yourself to come to a place where you're putting something on the table that somebody might take, you know, a pot shot at and trusting somebody that their best intention is actually it's for your good mm-hmm. and um, that they're not trying to dismantle you or uh, devalue you, but they're just trying to present something that in their perspective is seen and being able to chew on it, you know, and say, well, is it true? And taking it to the Holy Spirit and saying, is this true about me? Taking it to your wife, uh, your father or mother and being, have you seen evidence of this? And and not getting like angry about it and then turning offense on them and start using your mind to try to protect yourself from that thing. But it's actually allowing it to, to sink in and, mm. and see if, if something does need to be altered. Okay, so you're talking about embracing the wounds of a friend, someone sharing something they see, maybe a, a blind spot or a negative thing that's going on in your life. They share that, and you're open to receiving that. And um, is that what you're talking about? And that is, that's being vulnerable because, I mean, it can hurt. Faithful are the wounds of a friend. A wound is not fun. You know, the Bible also says in um, James 5, 16, it says, therefore confess your sins to each other, and pray for each other that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous man is powerful and effective. So if I'm confessing my sin, my falls, my, my, my shortcomings with another brother, I'm being vulnerable. Because he can take that and use it against me. 
So I'm being vulnerable. That's where that trust comes into place. And you know what? Just because you're in this church or, or a church that says Jesus is Lord doesn't mean that, those, that you're not going to be, be hurt. Relationships are dangerous and they're messy. But they're worth it. And unfortunately, many of us have been hurt and therefore we don't trust and therefore we're not transparent, we're not vulnerable, we're closed up, covered up, and therefore the Holy Spirit can't minister to us like he wants us to, like he wants to through relationship. Because I believe God has designed his kingdom, at least while we're here on this planet, we will not get everything we need directly from him. You know, I can't say, well, it's just me and Jesus. I don't need anybody else. I don't need any covering. I don't need any authority in my life. It's me and Jesus. Get everything from him. That's not the way he set up his kingdom. He's the one that says to submit to one another, to pray, to uh, confess your sins one to another. And talking about walking in relationship. So if I've gotten to a place where I'm covered up and I'm, I'm not open because I've been hurt, then you either, you have two choices to either deal with, allow the Holy Spirit to deal with those hurts, i.e. through Father's Heart Ministry or ministries like that, or continue to stay hurt and bound up and, and never come to your full potential that the Holy Spirit has for you. Two choices, get healed so I can open up or stay broken and stay the way I am, stay lonely. So vulnerability, it's risky. This stuff isn't safe. Relationships are not safe. Marriage is not safe. Because the person who can hurt you the worst is your spouse. Isn't that right? But is it worth the risk? Some people say no, it's not worth it. I say yes, it's worth it. Those who are experiencing it and experiencing the fruit of it, that they're allowing themselves to grow and to be sharpened and to grow into maturity, they're saying, you know what? Still a little bit scary but it's worth it. And of course, each one of us has to make that decision. Is it worth it or not? Okay, the third one, accountability. I know this is a word that scares a lot of people, and rightfully so. Accountability. What are we talking about when we talk about accountability? Yes, James. Is it on? is, you know, being open to having someone else speak to you uh, to make sure that you're getting things accomplished. For example, sometimes I ask CJ to help me to make sure I'm getting the things accomplished around the house that I need to get done. It could be also not just practical things, but accountability to work or allow God to work change in our lives and our hearts. So, you know, just being open to having one or more trusted friends to, to ask us on a regular basis, how are things going? How are things going with your relationship with your wife? How are these things going that you wanted to, to start implementing in your family time? You know, how are your family devotions going? How is your to-do list going? And being open to, to being honest and saying, you know, I, if, if you're did make progress to say that, but also being open to be honest when we didn't make the progress we wanted. So just helping each other to be successful. That's good. Also, accountability, and what we're talking about in these relationships, accountability is, is invited. 
it's not assumed and it's not, okay, we're in relationship, so I'm going to hold you accountable. It's not the way it works. You hold someone accountable when they say, brother, will you hold me accountable? You know, me being the pastor of this church doesn't make you accountable to me. I have to be invited into that relationship. And there are a number of people, you know, not too long ago, one brother said, hey, I'm going to be gone, going to be out of town this Sunday. I'm like, okay, that's cool. Why are you telling me? <laughs> and he says, well, because I value my relationship with you. I see you as a pastor. And, as, and see, we're on team together in, in particular ministry. And so he said, so that you will know that I'm not here, so that if you want to call on me, you know that I'm not going to be here. I thought, that makes sense. That makes sense. A lot of people have the attitude, I can do what I want. I'm, you know, I don't have to tell anybody where I'm going. And you really don't have to tell anybody anything. But when it comes to relationship, we're wanting to work, learn to run together and serve together. We invite each other. The Bible says submit to one another. That's mutual accountability. So the Bible encourages us to embrace that, to say, brother, would you keep me accountable? And so then when you say, okay, Stephen, I want you to hold me accountable in this particular area or these areas of my life. And of course, when I'm in a good mood and everything's happy and he tells me stuff, I'm okay with it. But what if I'm in a grouchy mood or whatever? He says, brother, uh, I see something going on in your life. Who are you to tell me? He says, you. (laughs) You gave me permission. So the accountability is not going to just do you good when you're wanting it. But even when things are going on in your life that you may not be aware of or you may be struggling with, and your brother comes along and says, hey, bro, you're kind of veering off. You know, I think of these men that uh, have fallen as far as ministers of these powerful big ministries and everything, and they've fallen hard. I wonder, I don't know what we'd know this is, you know, to investigate and ask them and find out, but I wonder what kind of accountability systems were in place with these men. You know, because some of these guys get so high, they get put up on such a high pedestal that the men around them are afraid to tell him what they really believe because they're afraid because he's so high and powerful. Poor man. That is a poor, pathetic place to be because we see the results. They fall hard and heavy. And some of us brothers think, well, I'm good. That stupidity is never going to happen to me. Be careful. Because right when you have that attitude, the enemy's right there around the corner. And see, what I want and what I've invited is brothers around me that as they get to know me, they, they begin to recognize me in my patterns. They understand when I'm encouraged, when I'm discouraged. Because you know? when you're around someone like that, you can tell their countenance. You know what they, man, what's going on? Nothing. Don't lie to me. Just like your, your wife. She knows when you're discouraged or you're, you know, because she's, you know, been married to you, has been around you. Honey, what's wrong? Nothing. Yeah, it is. What's wrong? Nothing. I'm lying. I'm lying. I'm lying. I'm lying. But when you have people around you that know you and then they see a shift, they see a change. Say, hey, bro, let's talk. What's going on? Nothing. <laughs> and after you get through the nothings and you finally open up and say, well, I'm really, I'm really having a hard time with my wife right now. Or I'm really struggling with this or that. And I want someone to call me like Todd or Cornell or Greg or Steve or 
people who know me, who I've invited to be close to me, they notice if I'm spending too much time talking with a certain lady in the church that doesn't have the last name Ellis. They're like, CJ, come here for a second. Yeah, what's up, Todd? Who's that lady you're talking to? Oh, her? Nobody. Why are you spending so much time every Sunday you're talking to her? Or this, or you know what I'm saying? And now I could get defensive or whatever the case is, whatever my state of mind is, but I want that kind of accountability. If I'm doing something stupid, I'm kind of... See, I don't want someone to call me an account when I've been slept with the prostitutes, when it's too late. I want when the brothers notice that I'm starting to veer a little bit, that my attitude is starting to get prideful. Or, or whatever the case is, I say, brother, let's talk. What's going on? Because, see, if I accept the correction there when I veered off this bit, this little bit, I don't have to deal with the big junk over here. I don't have to deal with the infidelity and, the, and the, all this garbage over here. You hear what I'm talking about, brothers? That's what I want. That's what I want. Because I don't want to be a headline in a newspaper unless it's, I get to play a part of what God's doing around the world, all this revival and stuff like that. I can be in that headline, but not the one where another one bites the dust. And see, if I have someone watching my back, and I don't have to keep looking behind me, I can focus on the task ahead. And Greg says, hey, don't, I got you back here, brother, keep going. But if I don't have anybody around me, then I'm keep watching over my back. Because I know the enemy's out there. And so I'm kind of paranoid. But if someone's behind me, if a brother's behind me, says, I got your back, bro. You're good. Then I can be safe. And I can be successful in the calling that he has for me. I can be the father that he's called me to be. And that's one thing I'm going to close with this, even though I'm not finished, but I'm going to close anyway. When I'm around these different brothers that I've allowed my heart to be open to, <coughs> and I hear what their passions are, and what God's dealing with them, and, and what he's showing them, and it's like, ooh, I want that too. You know, if this brother is, is getting strong in his relationship with his wife, and he's sharing what God's doing, and how their relationship's getting stronger, I'm thinking, ooh, I want to do that. Or how this brother's talking about how God's been convicting him to spend more time with his son, and to encourage his son, and to do this and this, I'm thinking... Ooh, I want some of that too. And so I get to learn and receive from the strengths of my brothers around me. So it's a win-win situation. But it's still risky. Still risky. But is it worth the risk to you? Now I want to close in prayer. And this probably, well, I can tell you, this won't be the last time we talk about relationship. Okay, I can... I can almost promise you that. The reason why I say almost because I don't know if I'm gonna be how long I'm gonna be here on this planet, so I can't say. Anyway, when we were praying this morning, by the way, if you haven't been coming to pre-service prayer, you're missing out. That's all I'm gonna say. Anyway, this morning, I mean, it's become my favorite part of Sunday. Me being excited about prayer—that's revival right there. I mean, watch out because Jesus is coming back. But I'm, I'm excited for prayer because what's going on? I mean, it's not just a ho-hum, we love you, Jesus, we love you, Jesus, you know, next thing. But God is doing some things back there. But this morning, one thing the Lord put on my heart was 
because <clears throat> we were encouraged and directed to pray this way, and it was awesome. And something that pricked my heart was the fathers, the men that have failed, and they know it. The men that have failed. God just, boom, put that on me. So we begin to pray for the men that have failed. Because we know we failed. So I've blown it. I didn't do this right. I did Okay, we messed up. But here's what the Holy Spirit is saying. Allow him to pick you up, repent, and allow him to take you forward. 1 John 1, 9 says that if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us and cleanse us. That means, Lord, I was so stupid last night. I can't believe I did that. Father, forgive me. I was wrong. He says, okay, I forgive you. You're cleansed. Let's go. But, but hold on a second. I need to, but you, either his blood is sufficient to cover it or it's not. And what we have to train ourselves to do is believe him. Say, okay, Lord, because when I've done stupid, We've all done stupid. When I've done stupid, it takes me three days to get over my stupid, my attitude of beating myself up. I mean, I'll repent and say, God, that was so stupid last night. Forgive me. He says, I forgive you. And then for three days, man, I can't believe how stupid I was. Man, that was stupid. An opportunity to witness goes by. Hi, sorry, I'm stupid. Man, that was so stupid. (laughs) And I'll be stupid for three more days before I finally get out of the cloud and say, okay, Bring it on, God. He says, well, you missed the opportunities because you were being stupid. We have to believe what he says and take him by faith and say, okay, God, and not allow our emotions to dictate who we are and what we're going to do. See, that's what the stupid is, being controlled by my emotions. And I've done that plenty of times, plenty of times. But men, God is saying, he loves you. And I was reminded, during the worship, I was thinking, when does God love you the most? Don't answer this verbally. When does God love you the most? When you're in here worshiping, abandoning, or when you're doing something stupid? He loves you the same. Even in the midst of the stupidity. What about your children? When do you love your children the most? When you've told them, no, Johnny, don't do that, don't do that, Johnny. And then you come home and he has the margin marker, all, you know, the permanent markers everywhere. After you told them no plan with the markers, do you love little Johnny even less, any less? No. Now, are you pretty ticked at little Johnny? And is Johnny going to get a warmer bottom? Yes, our father's going to discipline us because he loves us. It's not like we can do whatever we want and he forgives us. Then we, there may be some consequences when I do stupid. But I can be, I can be assured that he loves me. And he's saying, come on, son, let's go. Let's go. I got some cool stuff for you to do. And men, he wants us to do it together. So I want you to, I'm going to ask you to stand with me. <coughs> what he's saying to us men, particularly the ones who failed, they know they failed, whether it's being a father, a husband, or not doing things right. He's saying his grace is here right now for you to grab a hold of it to repent, turn from that, and begin to move with him. He's inviting you to grab a hold of his grace, repent, turn to him, and move forward. Not to wallow in the stupid. Not to wallow in it. 
And some of you men have been wallowing for years because maybe you didn't do things right with your kids. Maybe you didn't do things right with your former wife. And you're walking around calling yourself an idiot every day. And here's what I'm going to say. That right there is sin. Because you are lining yourself up with the deceiver, the enemy. You are coming to agreement and alignment with him. Either you're aligned with him or you're aligned with Jesus. And the Father's not wanting to condemn you. He's not wanting to remind you of what you did. You know what you did and he knows. He's saying, come on, son. It's time to get on. Get on with it. I got some cool stuff for you. I got some people that need you to be obedient to me. I got some people who are bound up, who are broken, who are, who are sick with disease that I want you to lay hands on. There are demon-possessed people that he wants you to cast the demons out and set them free. But if we're walking around in stupidity, then we're going to miss it. And so here's what I'm challenging you to all men. To quit walking in the stupid, but then also to say, you know what, God? I may be afraid or may not understand relationship, but I see that it is biblical. I see that it is your mandate. And by your grace, I'm going to embrace it so I can move forward effectively. That is a choice you have to make. I'm not saying you better be in relationship or else. I'm just sharing something with you that will help you to be more effective and fruitful for his kingdom. So, Father, right now, I open my heart to you. And I choose to receive your grace. I repent. Yes, I acknowledge that I messed up. I blew it. I didn't do things right with my wife or my children or whatever the circumstances. I messed up, God. But I repent right now. And I ask your forgiveness and I thank you for your forgiveness. And I choose to embrace your grace, oh God, to help me to overcome my emotional state. And by your grace, Lord, I choose as you lead me and help me, I choose to grab a hold of relationship, to begin to move forward intentionally in relationship, oh God. And Father, I thank you for your grace that you've been pouring out. And I thank you for those who have been grabbing it and running with it. And I thank you for those who are on the edge, who are about to, Lord. Thank you, Father. And I pray that every man, would, every man here would realize his significance to you. We love you, Father. We thank you that you are so good. We give you honor and praise in the name of Jesus. Amen. 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 Well, brothers, have an awesome day with your families. Have an awesome day in general. And we'll see you next time. God bless you.